is a bit of a foretaste of what you can enjoy at the close of the service. We always have food because we're trying to promote that as sort of our altar call. It's a way for us to come to each other as we uh, meet the Lord through relationships in the body. We're in Ezra again this morning, and we're going to be looking at Ezra chapter 6. If you need to find Ezra, go to the book of Job and then backpedal a little bit from that. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job is where you find Ezra in your Old Testament. And we're looking at the influence of the power of God, the influence of the power of God specifically on unbelievers or on an unbelieving culture. And one thing that impressed me from Ezra chapter 6 is that the power of God is ever before us, but it's easy to forget about how powerfully God is using you and me to affect people in our families, whether it's our spouse, our children, our coworker, our neighbor. It's happening. In spite of us, in spite of our sin, God is using us because we are his people and we are promoting and living out his word to the world. And that is seen vividly in chapter 6 of Ezra. And I think we underestimate the power of God as he is working and moving in and through us to reach people. It's easy to get intimidated by our culture and how expansive it is even as a worldly, unbelieving, and even at times pagan culture. It's easy to get intimidated and think, you know, the power of God, is that working at all in our culture? And there was a church leader, Aurelius Augustine. Augustine, who I read about in a chapter called, of a book called Culture Shift, written by Dr. Albert Moeller. He's the president of Southern Theological Seminary. And he was writing about Augustine and how Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And he wrote it right around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, as pagan as that was, was crumbling. And as it was crumbling, Augustine, this church leader, great bishop and theologian in the church, wrote The City of God. And he was comparing and contrasting what he called the city of God in contrast to the city of man. And he's saying that the city of God is filled with people who are concerned with God's greater glory and mission. They were ruled by God's word. They're ruled by God's purposes, and they have a passion as God's citizens. And then the city of man is filled with mixed passions and mixed allegiances and compromised principles. The city of God is citizens marked by unconditional obedience to God's commands. And then you have the city of man that demonstrates deadly patterns of disobedience, moral autonomy, and revolt against the Creator. Does that sound familiar? If you begin to think about the church as an expression of the city of God, we're sort of this small city surrounded by a culture that is the city of man. What can we do in a culture like that? What, what kind of dent can we make in society? I think it's easy for us to sort of be like the children of Israel and who are intimidated by the Goliath that we call the world and say, you know what, I don't think any of us are going to take Goliath on. And then David said, you know, look, there's a, a greater God than Goliath and runs out there. It's easy for a spouse to say, you know what, it's like a woman that came in this week and just in tears just saying, what kind of impact can I have at all on my unbelieving, unrepentant husband? How can I be light to my children in the home? What, what can I do at all? And here I am meditating on the power, the invisible power of God that can penetrate all lives and all hearts. What kind of influence? Well, we, want, we need to be impacted by the influence of the Jews from Ezra chapter 6 because they display... God through them is displaying his invisible power to touch a world leader and melt his heart. And to watch this world leader's heart melt, this is King Darius, to watch him melt throughout verses 1 through 12 is an expression of how the power of God is at work and can impact people who are all the way at the top. And then everybody in between. 
no matter who it is, God's power is bigger than they are and is at work. And is at work even through us, his church. Let's look at these believers. And I, I sort of had the handout distributed to you. I don't know if you got one or not, but it's the one that has the take-home points and also the outline. I would ask you to pull that out. I, I sort of gave you the handout this morning because we have five different points that are sort of long sentence points, and I want you to have them in front of you so you can kind of be guided along through the text. Five reasons to keep you from underestimating God's influence on unbelievers. That's what we're looking at. Five reasons to keep you from underestimating. God's power, God's influence on unbelievers. And the first is this. God's power can move a pagan king to carry out God's will. And he did. This is Darius. Look at verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. And let's stop there. First, we're looking at how a pagan king, a, a man who is in charge of a vast expanse of the world, how he's influenced by God's power to actually, as God's instrument, be carrying out God's will. It's very interesting to think about this man's power. He supervised and led as a dictator all of the known world at the time, the populace from all the way from India all the way to eastern Africa, Ethiopia, and modern Turkey. He is over all of that, and he's being guided by God to perform his God's will. He's a man who was deeply moved by the humility of the Jews. Now remember, the backstory here is that a predecessor, a Babylonian king, had destroyed Jerusalem 900 miles away, southwest of where Babylonia was. And Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and then captured 50,000 Jews and transplanted them for 50 years up in exile. All of them would be there in total for 70 years, but this first wave, after 50 years, had been given the rite of passage to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Cyrus, this king that preceded Darius, had given these Israelites passage to go back home. And so what happened is, is that the Samaritan neighbors, they begin to bully the Jews and say, listen, you're starting this building project, and we're going to sort of bribe counselors against you. We're going to intimidate you, bully you, and we're going we're to stifle the work. We don't like what you're doing. We're kind of intimidated by it. You're saying your God's the best, and you're going public with that. We don't like it. And so they shut the work down, and literally the Jews, their hands dropped, it says in the book of Ezra, and they stopped working for 16 years. Haggai, Zechariah, a couple prophets come to town, right? Like Billy Graham shows up, a couple other people. They begin to inspire the work, and these people get going again and rebuild, restart to rebuild the temple, to reestablish public worship. Well, there's a governor. His name is Tatanai. He's mentioned at the beginning of Ezra 5, and he gets nervous that the building is happening. And, and there's sort of these large stones and these long, you know, pieces of timber that are constructing this temple in front of them. And it's like a battle fortress. And he's investigating the project. He's like, you know, the IRS. No offense to those of you who work for the IRS, but it's like, you know, the, the pressure that's coming and, and scrutinizing this work and saying, this is not good. You know, we don't, we don't like it. it it's intimate. What are these, this crowd of 50,000 people who are inflamed to build this? What's going on? And so he begins to correspond, and he's writing Darius, the king, and corresponding back and forth and saying, listen, I need to know whether or not I can shut this thing down. And so what, Darius, what Tatanai does is he actually interviews the Jews, and the Jews convey a, a strong sense of humility that goes all the way up the pipeline to Darius and affects Darius and moves him with compassion and passion for this building project. And that's where we find ourselves in Ezra 6. It would be like this. 
let's say as Anchorage Grace Church or Anchorage Grace with Grace Christian School, we're sort of part of some building project or part of some movement or we're taking a stand against something in our culture that's public. And our governor, I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be a problem. Uh, we, we love our governor, but someone like our governor or someone in the municipality takes a stand against us and doesn't like what we're all about and literally begins to email or write formal letters to President Barack Obama and says, listen, what do we do with this situation in Anchorage? You know, it's southeast Anchorage. It's a small group of people that are doing this, but it's sort of unnerving us and you know, can we shut this down? And he, you know, we're interviewed and we just somehow through the email, we're, we're just conveying this humility. Hey, we just want to do whatever you guys want us to do. We want to come with a submissive attitude. We want to humble ourselves before the government and work within the government system. But we want to either build this or take this stand or pass this policy we're, we're taking a stand for. And, and suddenly our humility reaches the president's heart. And he, he's touched by our posture and says, you know what? Not only am I not going to stand in your way, I'm going to get on board with what you're doing, and I'm going to put all of the, the monies that I can and all of the support from the federal government behind your project. And in fact, I'm going to have the municipality reach into their pockets and fund what you're all about because I believe in it so much. And I am, I'm sort of inflamed by this, and I'm taking up your cause. And so now, you know, people here are going, wow, the federal government, the weight is behind what's happening here in our church that's what's happened here and it's all because of humility look at look at chapter 5 verse 17 I love this expression of humility at the end of the verse this is how the Jews are quoted to King Darius and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter Do you see that sense of humility guess what that's where the power of God comes through the power of God comes through humility. Our world is so sort of spooled up with, with pride and, and it's, you know, at every turn you see people saying, look, I need to go for it and do things in my own strength, with my own effort, with my own prowess, with my own sort of giftedness, with my own status. I need to sort of impose myself with full force to get something done. And the Jews take a completely opposite tact and they say, look, we're just trying to be used by God as we've been sort of instructed to work. And so whatever you think, King, please tell us what to do. Tell us how to proceed. And that humility grips Darius's heart. Look at verse 1. He's, he's making a decree. He's making a royal command for search to be made for into the archives in Babylonia to find the scroll, to find the written document that Cyrus his predecessor, the king before Darius, had written down that told them to do this. He's saying, search, find it, you know, and open up the libraries. we got to figure this out. I mean, that is just bizarre for some pagan leader to take that kind of interest in these Jews. But God was carrying out his will through this pagan king at this point. Proverbs 21.1 says that, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And God oftentimes works through world leaders, even pagan ones, even in surprising ways. God is promoting peace in our world, and we don't even understand his invisible power that is at work, but is always there. And it's at work in the heart of Darius here. In fact, Darius is so committed that at the beginning of verse 2, you see that the search moves from Babylonia to Ekbatana. Now that's significant because of this. You wouldn't maybe readily see it, but Ekbatana is 300 miles due north of Babylonia. And so when they didn't find the document, the actual document from Cyrus in the royal archives, they had to search to another smaller region for the record or a memorandum of that document up in Ekbatana. Ekbatana is sort of modern-day Iran. It's, uh, it, there's a city called Hamadan, which is actually one of the oldest cities in the world in existence today. That's the same city as Ekbatana, but um, Hamadan... Uh, finds its origin in 1100 B.C. 
You could Google it. You can find that place now. That's the same city. And it's where they went to find a record of what Cyrus had decreed 20 years before. So Darius is very moved to get on mission with what God is doing. Whether he's doing it wittingly or unwittingly, he's inspired to be part of this thing. And so God's power is moved um, through a pagan king for his will to be carried out. And then secondly, point two, God's power can move a pagan king to see God's ways. To see God's ways. In other words, this king begins to tie together the story of what's happening with these Jews. He's connecting the dots. He's discerning God's hand in the circumstances. And you see this in the fact that they, he located this record. And he's seeing that circumstances are gelling. Remember, the governor Darius, he, he didn't have anything to do with initiating this project. King Cyrus had done that. And so he's hearing from Governor Tatanai. He's reading into the testimony of these Jews. He's responding back to the Jews. He's responding back to Tatanai. And then he's seeing a record that is a memorandum of what Cyrus had written. And he's saying, you know what? All of this is beginning to make perfect sense to me. And this really is part of the God of Israel's plan. And I'm getting behind it. You know, it reminds me of how so often people who are unbelievers have the word of God sown into their hearts. And they sort of hear the word of God and then forget about it. And then a crisis takes place. And suddenly God connects the dots in their life to the gospel through the word. I knew a guy one time who was a medical doctor, and he was sort of a, a famed medical doctor from Little Rock for what he had done and accomplished in the medical community and society. And, and so this guy was talking to me sort of at the end of his career in life, and he was an on-fire Christian. He actually had sort of this, you know, evangelism button that he would wear or pin that he would wear on his coat lapel to prompt evangelism encounters in the doctor's office. You know, doctors typically move from one patient to the other. I began to talk to him about the Lord, and all of a sudden, 45 minutes passed, and he was that kind of Christian. And he was explaining to me his testimony and how he did not remember who had told him a certain verse. But as he was standing over his mother's grave, and he felt like his life was crumbling before him, the words from Jesus came into his mind. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul. And the Lord transformed him. He realized that he didn't want his soul to be lost. And it was sort of, he, he sort of talked about the time of Bill Clinton's presidency and some of the stuff that he was being vetted on and some of the sins that were coming out there. And there was just a lot of circumstances that were sort of colliding in his life where structures were falling apart and God's word and God himself became paramount as the only anchor that could pull him through. And that's sort of Darius's experience here where he's seeing the circumstances gel and God's project is coming to the forefront as most important. He also sees this in history because in the record or memorandum, it's written, verse 3, in the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem. Each to its place you shall put them in the house of God. All of this history is connecting with Darius. He's remembering perhaps the historical record of King David and his son King Solomon, the first temple, Nebuchadnezzar, temple vessels being stolen and, and now being restored. And he's going, oh, this is all part of a grander, greater plan that is melting Darius's heart. And his heart is, is moving towards God's building project. It's amazing what's, what's happening. We see it in the lives of people. If you've ever witnessed to someone and you say, you know what, 
does your life in any way connect with what I'm telling you? And a lot of times people will say, it's connecting exactly with what you're telling me or explaining to me from Scripture. You wouldn't believe what God is up to behind the scenes. That's what's working in Darius's heart. That's light from, from God that is being shed in Darius's heart as he's connecting with God's hand in histories. He's seeing that this house that's being built in Jerusalem was always made for worship with temple vessels and ways to worship God. Well, okay, first of all, God's power is on display, is moving through a pagan king's heart to carry out God's will. And secondly, God's power can move through a pagan king or move a pagan king to see God's ways. And then thirdly, God's power can move a pagan king to promote God's work. You know, before we, lo- before we look at verses 6 and 7, I want to mention this. If God can move a pagan king, don't you think he can move anyone? I mean, the reason that we're studying a pagan king being moved by the power of God is because if a king can be moved by God, then anybody can be moved by God. And I just want to make that patently clear. It's not just that God works with certain officials and is sort of doing behind the scenes, big picture stuff through kings and big guys. No, the point is, is that God works through a king and everything down from a king. Even you and me. He works through us. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 10.31 in reverse. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you're making a peanut butter sandwich, eat that to the glory of God. And everything else above that, do all to the glory of God. In reverse, it's if God can reach a pagan king who has sort of dictator, lowercase d, deity sort of status. You know, this lowercase g, God on earth. status. If God can move that guy to buy in to what God is up to, then he can do that in anyone's life. All right, verse 6. This is God moving through a pagan king to promote God's work. He's going to promote God's work. Look at verse 6. And Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, beyond Euphrates, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work, let the work on this house of God alone Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. In other words, look, back off the scrutiny. You know, call off the dogs. Call off the intimidators. Let them alone. I mean, this is a majorly humbling note for Governor Tatanai. You've been nervous about something, but as Darius, I'm on fire for it. So you need to just back away and back your people off. And by the way, let them build and rebuild this temple on the exact site. Let them reconstitute exactly what they've always been all about because I'm all in for it. This is a non-believing ruler who's expressing this. And Darius, he not only backs the authorities off, he is blessing the project. He's saying rebuild the house of God in precision. Reestablish the witness. Again, to make the comparison, be like the president whether he's a believer or non-believer, it's, it does, it's full force, full government force approval on something that believers are doing. That's what's happening here. And, and bigger than that, bigger than that, I mean, the expanse and vastness of Darius's kingdom is world status support on God's little mission with God's little remnant people. That's what's happening here. Point four. Again, God... God's power is moving through a pagan king to carry out God's will. He moves through a pagan king to see God's ways. And then thirdly, he moves through a pagan king to promote God's work. And then fourthly, God's power can move a pagan king to enable God's worship or worship of God. To enable worship of the one true God. Verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you, will, you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. 
The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail. Look about passionate support from a pagan. He's saying, listen, I, I am financing this thing. We need to give towards this, and I'm going to humble you, the governor there. Give from your own treasury coffers towards this project. This building needs to roll. This thing needs to happen. And not only does it need to be erected, constructed, it needs to function. And so he finances the building with these urgent calls for the cost to be paid in full verse out without delay verse out verse 8 look at verse 9 and whatever is needed Darius is also facilitating the operation he finances the building and he facilitated the operation whatever is needed he's committed to the success of this and bulls and rams and sheep they would have been offered in burnt offerings in morning context and evening context ongoingly to you know splatter blood in this house of worship as a symbol of God's grace and the need for God's grace and forgiveness for sins that are ongoing and so so the the king is saying, listen, this kind of worship needs to be happening because there's power behind this. Again, Darius, he's a polytheist. He believes in multiple gods. He's believing in the pantheon of Babylonia. He would worship a god called Bel or a god called Nebo. I mean, he, he's worshiping statue idols, but he's saying, you know what? There's something special about this invisible god there. And so I want to finance the building project and I want to facilitate the worship. He's got a personal motive behind this. Look at verse 10. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. You see that? Hey, we, I can't deny the fact that God has tied this thing together or one of the gods has done this. And I want that powerful God's power to splash on me and my kingdom and my sons. Kind of a vested interest. The Bible says we should pray for rulers and people in governing authority so that God's power will be working through them and promote peace to Christians. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's also to be a saving witness to governing authorities and other people around. He's asking for that kind of prayer support in his ministry. A pagan king saying, pray for me. He's influenced by the power of God. Number five, our last point. You know, again, God's power can move a pagan king to carry out God's will. It can move so that a pagan king can see God's ways. But God's power can move a pagan king to promote God's work. God's power can move to through a pagan king to enable God's worship, and now God's power can move a pagan king to protect God's worth. A pagan king is actually being used as a mouthpiece for God here in verses 11 and 12 to promote and, and protect God's glory. It's very interesting. Look at verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict... A beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Let's stop there. This is some strong, strong medicine here. Darius is warning that if anyone revolts against this project, and if he chooses to lame out on the house of God for the sake of his own house, then his own house is going to be the instrument that kills him. Impaled here is the word crucified, and Darius was no stranger to crucifixion. Darius is sort of a guy who's being moved by God's power here, but he's also a pretty strong, heavy-hitting world overlord leader where when he took over from Cyrus to make a statement of takeover, he had 3,000 Babylonians crucified on their homes He's no stranger to this. History documents that he was someone who would impale people. And he's saying, look, if someone goes against this, 
If someone is a Samaritan or a Jew and goes against this program that I'm all vested in regarding, then just have them hung up on their house and have a beam run through them where they are pinned up on public display that they went against my authority. Now, that's probably the pride of the king, but beneath the surface... God is protecting his own glory because God is working his will out through this pagan king to get his mission accomplished. People impaled. It's an interesting sort of picture, isn't it? Reminds me of the words of Jesus where if we build our house upon the sand and we choose that house, instead of building our house upon the rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, we're going to be swept away. It's choosing the wide road that leads to destruction rather than the narrow road that leads to heaven and eternal life. It's choosing to bow down to an idol, a sin habit, a sin pattern, a life-destroying habit, a family-destroying habit, and, and bowing down and worshiping that, worshiping money, worshiping materialism, worshiping our own personal worldly success, worshiping that instead of God's program. And if we worship something other than God and put that as preeminent over God, then that thing will kill us. Sometimes it kills people in this life, right? You see people laid up in the hospital for a sin habit, for an addiction, for something they've done wrong. People, um, they do crimes against, you know, the, the government, against the authorities, and they end up in prison. Some people are killed for their crimes, and they're literally impaled. They're killed. They're executed Um, because of their wrong choice. They chose to serve themselves or their own idols and their own indulgences, their own passions, their own sin, their own lust, instead of serving God, and it killed them. We've seen that over and over again. But even deeper than that, I think of hell and eternal damnation that awaits people who choose to, to go after the world's house, you know, the city of man, instead of the city of God. And the picture uh, that Jesus paints of hell is one of darkness, eternal torment, where people are weeping and gnashing their teeth. People in hell, they're not weeping and gnashing their teeth because they're angry at God forever. No, the gig is up. They know that God was the one true Lord and that they missed it. That grace was offered and they went the other way and they're culpable for that. And so the gnashing of teeth in hell, I think, is the gnashing of regret. And it's sort of the same picture of what you see where people are impaled on their own homes. They made the wrong choice. That's what the picture is here. The word for impaled uh, literally means to be lifted up. And J.C. Ryle, this sort of late Puritan preacher, said that Jesus himself was probably thinking of these words, this idea of being lifted up when Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Crucifixion. It reminds me of the story of Esther. Remember when Haman, this wicked leader under the king Ahasuerus, was trying to lift up his own pride And he was trying to say, listen, I want to be dubbed second in command. And he goes to the king. And King Ahasuerus had been stirred by some records records that he had read about Mordecai, which was Esther's uncle probably, and how Mordecai had taken up um, and protected the king. And that had sort of been forgotten, but had been chronicled. And so Haman goes in and says says, hey, how you doing? And the king is saying, what should I do for someone, you know, to honor them and, and to promote, you know, their glory? And Haman's thinking of himself, and he's saying, well, ride him around on a horse and parade him and, you know, give him your royal robe, etc., and ring and, and do all of these things. And really, ironically, he was setting the stage for Mordecai, who had, who had humbly served the king to be honored, And at the same time, what was Haman doing? He was building 75-foot-high gallows for Mordecai to be hung or to be hanged. Grammar lesson here, to be hanged. There we go. Um, And it was Haman who was hanged and his ten sons, right? Haman was filling his own heart with pride, and he was hung for it by the instrument as a display of his own pride. And that's the same warning That's here for them then and for us today. 
What does it look like, again, for a world leader to be touched by the power of God? Do you underestimate the power of God and its influence? Let me show you what this looks like in Daniel. Flip over a few pages in your Old Testaments forward to Daniel chapter 6. This is Darius again. I believe this is the same Darius. Daniel was a prophet in exile in Babylonia during the time of Ezra with Darius. He's up there with Darius, and this is what's going on. There was a conspiracy against Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 where the religious leaders called satraps were trying to trying to snare Daniel, kind of like the Pharisees after Jesus. They're trying to trap Daniel and saying, look, let's build you know, a, a, treatise, uh, a treaty here or a, an agreement that if anyone prays to anyone else other than you, Darius, then they need to be killed because the satraps knew that Daniel would pray three times a day towards Jerusalem, and they wanted to trap him. So they did trap him, and Darius, at this point, being affected by God's prophet Daniel, being softened in his heart, was just distraught and actually was up all night long praying for Daniel, hurting over the fact that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Verse 14 says, The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, king, that it is a law that the Medes and the Persians, that, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And so you have Daniel who is commanded to go and to be cast into the den of lions. These are hungry animals that in no way would have spared Daniel as a meal. But you have the king, Darius, who's touched in verse 16, saying, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And so Darius is up all night. He's, he's upset. He's wondering if Daniel would be delivered. And what happens? You have, you know, a stone was laid at the mouth of the den Verse 18, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And then at the break of day, verse 19, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near to the den and he cried out in a tone of anguish. He says, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said, oh, king, live forever. And he speaks of how God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths, and no harm came to him because he was found blameless. The king was exceedingly glad, but guess what? There was poetic justice here, just like in Ezra chapter 6, verse 24. The king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Pretty harsh. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now, what I want you to see here is how affected is Darius by the power of God, by the testimony of this man, Daniel? Look at this. Verse 26, he makes a, a decree here, just like in Ezra 6. It's that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Now again, Darius, he's a polytheist. He's believing in all of his pagan gods, but he's putting the God of Daniel, Daniel's God, at the top of the list. And he's saying, don't go... Don't go messing with this God because his power is real. You see it in how he protected Daniel. Let's go back to Ezra. Ezra. Again, he's taking up God's honor at this point, and he, he does it in the same way in verse 12. Again, the house shall be made a dunghill if you go against God's plan. It should be reduced to rubble if you have interest in that house over God's house. In verse 12, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this. 
Again, God is speaking here through this pagan king and his power has moved this pagan king in the same way that Revelation 22:18 says, if you add anything to God's prophecy, the plague should be added to you. Deuteronomy 4 says the same thing. Don't add or take away from the law of God. Darius is saying, look, don't add to or take away or alter in any way. Don't stretch out a hand against God's plan because if so, you should be overthrown by that God. He's, he's protecting the glory of God in this moment. He's so moved by the power of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you still tempted to underestimate the power of God? If God can reach someone like this, God can reach anyone. So we shouldn't be underestimating God's power, but... Let me just sort of throw a curveball to you this morning. It's something that surprises me. It, it doesn't surprise me that God's power can affect somebody like this. What surprises me more is that God's power can affect someone like this and for them to still be lost. That's what struck me this week. If you believe Darius is still a pagan king but is acting this way, what does this tell you about the power of God? Well, what it tells me is that the power of God can affect people in a way that's powerful, that moves them to do things when they are still yet unconverted at the same time. Kind of like Judas Iscariot, who saw the power of God, heard the power of God, performed miracles, did powerful things, and yet was still unconverted on the road to perdition the end of his life, tragic. There are people who are like that. Think of the parable of the soils. You have four different soils. Three of them are condemning soils and one is saving. Jesus said that there is hard soil. That's where the seed of the word of God, it bounces off the soil, goes into the road, and the ravens, picture of Satan, Satan snatches that seed away. The person is yet unconverted. Second soil you have is rocky soil. That's rocky foundation that's, you know, under a three inches of dirt sort of scenario where the seed goes in, hits the rock, bounces some early life out, you know, there where it's like it looks like real spiritual fruit. It's like real joy that's happening. But because the root can't go deep and penetrate into the nutrients to stay and last, it's really a Judas-like faith or Darius-like faith. It's rocky soil that isn't really a heart that's changed. It just looks like it's changed, but then doesn't stand the test of time. And then thirdly, you have weedy soil or thorny soil. So you have hard soil, rocky soil, weedy soil. And weedy soil is the soil where the seed goes in and then it's the fruit and life is choked out by the thorns and weeds. And it doesn't last. And what are those thorns and weeds? Well, Jesus explains them in Luke 8 to be the anxieties or the cares of this world. And it's people who, they look like a Christian, they act like a Christian, and then when they are tested, by the troubles of this world, they don't turn to Christ at all. They flee Christ and go their own way. And Jesus is exposing that as a soil that doesn't save. And then there's one last soil, and that's the soft soil. You have the hard soil, you have the rocky soil, the weedy soil, and then the soft soil. And that soft soil is the soft soil that the word goes in and it goes deep with the roots and life is produced, some 30, some 60, and 100 fold of fruit that remains. In John chapter 5, Jesus is preaching a lesson about the vine and the branches. Do you remember that? And those branches that don't produce fruit, are they're taken off the vine and they're cast into the fire. That was being taught right as Judas Iscariot was, was going to turn Jesus in to be captured at the Garden of Gethsemane. That lesson was taught from the upper room discourse to the, to the point where Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's talking about Judas Iscariot. And he's saying, on the other hand, you need to be a, fruit, be a branch that abides in the vine, that abides in Jesus Christ, that stays there and produces fruit that remains. That's a genuine believer, one who's a fruit bearer. Even small little grapes, and we're not talking about huge things. We're just talking about someone who stays with Christ through the trial. That's what it means to be an overcomer. You're not saving yourself. You're just proving that you're the real thing. 
And what's shocking here is to see all that Darius is doing and how he's being impacted by the power of God, and yet he's not really converted at all. He's influenced by common illuminations. That's what Jonathan Edwards called it. Or demon faith, James chapter 2. It's even the demons believe and shudder. They tremble at the truth, but they're not yet converted. That's what we have here. But let me just say this. I didn't bring all of this up to depress you. I brought this up to warn you that there are people who are exposed to the light, but then reject the light. They're affected by the light of the gospel, but they're not transformed. But there are also people who are affected by the light and then are transformed. Okay, let me talk about those people. Because there's a lot of people, as one preacher put it, who are pre-cooked by the gospel. They've been influenced by the truth. The seed of the word of God, verses have been sown into the heart. And then when the crisis comes, they believe. Like I mentioned before. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, look, I sowed the seed, I planted, Apollos watered, and God brings forth the increase. There are people who are in the oven, and they're, they're low-hanging fruit. They're, they're waiting to be believers, and, and it's our job to harvest that. They, the seeds have been sown, and we sort of, we, we water it, and we, we tell them things about God and our testimony by the way we live, and then God turns the lights on, and people become believers. Just to go back into church history for a second, Jonathan Edwards, he was preaching to a crowd in his church during the Great Awakening. Right before that, he was preaching in colonial America to people that his grandfather, who was the pastor before him at the church, had, they, he had led the parents to Christ, but then their, grandparents, their grandchildren were in the congregation, and Jonathan Edwards said, you're not believers, and actually refused communion to them for their own good. Because he knew the seed was sown, but it still needed to be watered and they needed to believe. And guess what? The Great Awakening came out of that and they believed. And our country was forever influenced by a gospel wave of conversions that happened. That's the whole sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon where he scared them by saying, look, it's like you're being um, dangled over hell on a spider's web. And they went, whoa, oh, okay, I, I can't just ride my grandparents' faith into heaven. I need to genuinely believe. Yeah, they were exposed to light, but then God converted them. And that's where the great awakening came from. It's where Jesus said to the scribe who was questioning him, saying, what's the greatest law that we're supposed to, command, supposed to, supposed to obey in Mark 12? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe caught on to that, and he said, okay, I see it. So it's, it's a love issue. It's a heart issue. It's not just obeying through sacrifices. He got it. And Jesus looked at that scribe and said, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom. That's the light of the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of God to influence through you. You could be being used to transform cultures, to transform your business, to transform your neighborhood, to transform your family. You are being used, if you're a believer in the home, to transform your kids. This is what God is up to. Some people are being affected superficially like Darius, and some people are being sown into and are going to believe because of you, because of God through you. That's what happens. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, spouses in the home, a believing spouse in the home, can affect their spouse and is affecting their children. 1 Peter 3 verse 1 says that husbands who are unbelievers can be won by their wives' humility and submission in the home, and they're one without a word. They're one through a lifestyle. These Jews have shown us what a submissive attitude can do, how it can promote conversions. Here's a few take-home points, things to take home. Number one, is it worth it to regularly pray for pagan authorities? Again, pagan is a kind of a pejorative term. I don't mean that, you know, against anyone. But whether we have believers or unbelievers in office, we are commanded to pray for them. And I just think that Ezra chapter 6, it gives us an impetus to see the impact that we can have through praying for our leaders, influencing them, corresponding with them. First. Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 talks about doing this for the sake of peace and harmony in our society. Gospel influence is real and it's powerful and it's worth it to pray regularly for our leadership. 
even that they would be saved. Number two, do you acknowledge God's rule over all of your life circumstances? Let me just ask you this for a second. Just pull over and park for a second. If you were to look at the, you know, sort of the memorandum record, if your record was found of your last 20 years and it talked through how you ended up, you know, in your home, with your life, with your spouse and your job and your situation, with your kids, with your teenagers, with your this or your that, would you look at that and say, you know what, God has been involved in all of those details and he's working something out for his glory? Or would you say, man, what a waste? It's one or the other. There really isn't sort of middle encouragement, you know, like, well, you know, I'm kind of going along. It really isn't like that. That's not how the, the human heart works because we're sinners. So there's either a redeeming element in our hearts where we go, you know what, God has smiled through the trials of my life. He smiled upon me, and I'm going to cling to him, that he's working things out for his good and glory. So verse 3, I mean, take home point number 3. Are you underestimating God's influence through you on unbelievers? Sort of the drum I've been beating the whole time. I hope not. If you are God's remnant people, and you are, then you need to believe that the power of God's on your life. I was thinking about this uh, first hour. My Sunday school teacher in fifth grade, he, he took a piece of chalk. These are these sort of archaic tools to write on onyx-colored blackboards, right? He drew on a piece of chalk, with a piece of chalk, um, Goliath, and sort of, you know, this big. And then he, he drew David like this, and he said, look, you know, David's confidence to charge against Goliath was the fact that he knew, and he drew this great big sort of image of a big, figure like God, he knew that God was behind him in all that he was doing. You think Sunday school doesn't matter? That seed was sown, you know, a long time ago in my heart, and it, it lasted, it stuck, and I wasn't a believer at that point. But it's, a, it's an image forever etched in my mind that God's power is bigger than our circumstances, and we need to trust that God is using us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. And I pray, God, that we would not underestimate your rule, your invisible might that is permeating through our lives. And I pray that we would not um, be tempted to forget that you are powerfully in control. God, you are the wisdom, the true wisdom that we are to seek, not the wisdom of this world. And Lord, we live in the city of God in our hearts. We are citizens in heaven. And yet we are here in this world as strangers, as exiles passing through. And I pray that you would use us to um, give you fame and glory and honor. And we thank you that you are in charge of all things everything down to what we're going to eat in a few moments, whether in the back of the room or for lunch. You're involved in those conversations, and I pray, God, that we would keep you uppermost in our minds and everything that we do to see people saved and influenced by your power for your glory. Use us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.